0: The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. I'm going to read Psalm 17, as I try to do every week. I try to rightly not just divide the word, I try to rightly read the word. Now, I want you to pay attention to to the punctuation. I want you to pay attention to the emphasis. I want you to pay attention to how this psalm is written with this in mind. Look at the inscription, a prayer of David. So this is a recorded prayer. And I just want you to ask yourself, do I pray like this? Is this representative of me? So Psalm 17, invite you to stand. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication Come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have heard my heart. You have visited me my night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you. For you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly, They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking to ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray rightly. Teach us to pray righteously. Teach us to pray according to your will. Teach the psalm to our hearts and to our minds now. We plead in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Here's the main idea. The Lord God is the Savior of those who seek refuge in him. The Lord God is the Savior of those who seek refuge in him. So I just want to ask you a question. Where do you go in time of need? When, When things get hard for you. What is your first inclination? Where do you run to? How do you react? How do you respond? My early Christian life at the church I was a part of, there was a quartet of men who sang uh, old Stamps Baxter hymns. And they would mostly sing a cappella or sometimes with bluegrass instruments. And they sang this old song. The words went like this. Where could I go, oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul. Where could I go, oh, where could I go? Where could I go but to the Lord? That's the heart of this psalm. David's answering the question of where we go when we are in need, when we're in need of refuge. This is the first time in the Psalms or the Psalter that it is explicitly explained to us a prayer of David. That's a part of the inspired text. God wants us to know that this was a prayer. Now we know that David is a man after God's own heart. Part of the way we know that David was a man after God's own heart is the Bible tells us that, but then the Bible shows us that because David was a man of prayer. Now this particular prayer reveals several things. First, it shows us that David in this instance is being wrongly accused and dangerously pursued. Somebody's trying to kill him. As a result of being accused and dangerously pursued, he is in anguish. And in his anguish, he prays and he finds his refuge and his joy. He finds his refuge and his joy in the Lord. So let's unpack the Psalm first. David pleads his case before the Lord. David uses argument here, he uses logic, rational thought, seeking conclusion. I don't mean he's arguing with the Lord as if he's accusing the Lord of doing something wrong. He's making his case. This is the language of a courtroom and it's emphatic language. Notice the explanation point after each sentence. It's not that David is on trial. What is happening is David has been wrongly accused and he's being wrongly abused and persecuted. So he's stating his case before the righteous judge, the Lord God Almighty. The concern for righteousness and justice dominates this entire song. Verse one. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Now first and foremost, we see that he is dressing the Lord God Almighty, the one true God. Now notice his repetition. Hear, attend, give ear. It's not as if God does not hear him. God does hear him. He's being emphatic of the fact that he knows that God hears him. So Brothers and sisters, let me just say to you, God does not hear you when you don't plead. When you come to him, according to his word through Christ Jesus, he attends to you. He hears you. Attend to my cry, he says. This is the first time, we're now in the 17th Psalm. This is the first time this word's used. It's an intense word. It's the language of an intense expression. It can be joyful or it can be sad. Now, think about this with me. A cry is the earliest utterance you made, it's the first means of communication that you had in this world. You cried, and your parents responded. It's interesting that this is the word used, not just in this instance, but in multiple locations for prayer. Like an infant's cry, we, we come before the Lord. It's natural. It's, it's earnest. It's not that we're seeking eloquence. But it is eloquent before the Lord. It's a sweet sound to him to hear his children cry to him. So in this cry, he says, hear a just cause. Literally, Hear right or hear righteousness. Think about this with me. Right will never be wronged before a righteous judge. When you come with what is right before God, he will hear, receive, and act. Why? Because he is righteous. Now, he says, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Does that make you uncomfortable? You say, well, I hadn't really thought about it. Let's, let's put it in this context. What if you're having a prayer group and somebody during their time of prayer out loud says, Lord, give ear to my prayer from lips that are free of deceit. What are you going to do at that moment? I'm going to be honest about me. I'm going to go, what'd you just say? I may not say it out loud, excuse me, from lips free of deceit. Is David saying here that he lives in sinless perfection? Hear me, this is important. You don't get this, you turn this psalm on its head. The answer to that question is no. What David is saying is in this instance, this situation that he's dealing with, with the person who's accusing him and pursuing him, in this instance, he's innocent. Now he states this and presses his integrity further. He says, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So as I look at that, there's the thought that immediately comes to my mind because we're so scared of hypocrisy today. But we're so scared of hypocrisy, I think we're running from some of the truths of Christianity and we're avoiding some things that we ought to be embracing. So, if David here is being a hypocrite, here's what he's asking for he's asking for vindication to fall on himself. It's not as if he's controlling the Lord here. What he's doing is he's asking the Lord to make things clear. So think of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. I'll just quote it for you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I've heard people who are not living for Christ or those who are living in sin make an appeal to God as if what they're doing is okay and God ought to avenge them. Now, if a hypocrite appeals to the Lord God, the searcher of our souls, when they are wrong, they are being insincere insincere and profane. If they really think that God does not see, then what they're ultimately doing is filling themselves with a form of dismay. What we ought to be as followers of Christ is we ought to be people who are saying with David, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Verse 3, you have tried my heart, you visited me in the night. I think that points to Psalm 139, that there was, there was a contemplation in David. And here's the conclusion he's come to. You've tried my heart and I'm not wrong here. I think this probably has to do with his relationship with Saul, who's accusing him of trying to take his throne. And David's saying, No. And Saul's accusing him of trying to take his life. So Saul's after him and he's trying to kill him. And David's saying, I'm not done wrong here. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have slipped. Now, if you study 1 Samuel, here's what you find out. On more than one occasion, David could have killed Saul. And he doesn't do it. Now, the closest he gets to sin, and you've got to ask, does he sin here or not, is when he cuts off the corner of his robe and leaves it there. Just letting him know, I was here. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he's saying here that he avoided the ways of the violent. He did not respond with violence, with violence. So the question is, how did he keep his way pure? By the word of your lips, it says, verse four. He didn't get caught up in doing what the works of man or the wicked would do. It was the word of God that guides his life. My steps hold fast to your paths. I've done, I've walked in the path of the Lord. I've I've not walked in the path of the wicked. I've followed you. Then he says, my feet have not slipped. All right, here's the challenge we have when we read this. My feet has not slipped. Here's what we got to do in our minds, in our hearts. There's a tension here. Make sure you get it. Most commentators believe that Psalm 17 was written way before the Bathsheba incident. In this instance, David says his feet had not slipped, but we know, here's what we know, David's feet are gonna slip. He's gonna sin. And he's gonna write a psalm of repentance and the need for forgiveness. But here's what we must always remember. We must always remember that David is a type. David is pointing us forward. He's pointing us to the king. And there is one whose feet are. Never slipped. Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter two. And I just want you to notice in this text how similar some of the thoughts are to Psalm 17. I'm gonna start in verse 22. This is speaking of Christ. It says, who suffered and left you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So this is the things David's saying I didn't do. I didn't, I didn't get caught up in the, the language of going back and forth. And even though I suffered physically, I didn't threaten to suffer, cause suffering on the other side. It says, but continued entrusting himself to him who, what? Judges Justly. All right, now look up here. Don't miss this. Christ himself, who was sinless, trusted himself to the one who judges justly. And here's what he did on the cross He took our justice. He himself bore his sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Christ died in our place, the one whose feet never slipped, to pay the penalty of our sin that we might be saved. And, here's what modern Christianity is leaving out, the and. He died to save us from our sin and that we might live to righteousness. Righteousness. what are you saying, pastor? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that we, in our pursuit of righteousness in Christ, ought to be praying prayers like David prayed. I think, I think we're hiding under this. Well, you know, God, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I think what we're saying when we say to God that to God, we're saying, you know how I am. <laughs> Wink. And what we ought to be saying in prayer is Christ died for my sin and that I might live to righteousness. That I might live as unto Christ, that I might be able to say, you've tried my heart, you've visited me in my you have tested me and God, you find nothing in this instance. I'm pursuing you. Now, here's the intent of the song before we move on. Just because we're pursuing God does not mean we will not face adversity. David's right here. And he's still surrounded and about to die. So what does he do next? He seeks refuge. He seeks his refuge in the Lord. I will call upon you. You will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. David here confidently is praying, calling attention, asking the Lord to answer. My question is, how does he know God's going to answer? The answer is in verse seven. Now, this is the core of the song. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So David's prayer, get the sentence, I'll repeat it twice. David's prayer is an appeal to the character and nature of God, particularly his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love coming from the covenant-keeping God. God established a covenant with David from his throne. The Messiah was coming. God had promised this. He had promised his Hesed, his steadfast love, his unending, binding covenant love to David. And David knew this. And he's saying, even though, even though sometimes it appears that this, that this steadfast love is hidden, he's saying, Lord, show it. I know it's there. Show me your steadfast love. Show me your marvelous loving kindness. Show it to my mind. Remove my ignorance in this situation. Show it to my heart that I might be gra- grateful to you. Show it to my faith so that my confidence would grow. Show it to my actual experience. God, take away my fear. You're my refuge. You're my, you're my savior. So brothers and sisters, and for those who have yet to believe, hear the covenant-keeping Savior today. Hear him say to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think about my life, and I think about your lives as I've pastored for many years now. I think of the people who say, I'll keep it. And the more life presses them down and presses them down. And and for some people, they'll let it begin to grind them into the dust. And they keep saying, I got it. I got it. You say, nobody really says that. Yeah, they do. Just ask people, how could I pray for you? I'm fine. It's the number one answer you'll get in this part of the world. I'm fine. I got it. I got it. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6, 37. All the Father gives to me, comes to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Is Jesus overstating here? No. No. He's the covenant-keeping God with covenant-keeping love. This is chesed again. This is the steadfast love. He will not cast us out. Why? Verse eight, keep me as the apple of your eye. And my grandmother used to say that. You're the apple of my eye. I thought she meant I was sweet. I knew better than that. So we got to illustrate. Got to go to the eye for a second. Spurgeon said, as the mountains sound Jerusalem, so your cheekbones surround your eye. God designed your eye socket to protect it. Think of how many times you've been hit in the face and you thought after it was over, man, that could have knocked my eye out. I mean, just, that was close. You weren't consciously thinking, my cheekbones blocked it. So God's designed you to fix it. The other thing God's done, I could come up to you and, you know, Slap you on the back or whatever, and you might sort of flinch. But if I go toward your face, your hands are coming up. God designed you to block. All of you will do it, regardless whether you've lost your speed or not. Your hands are coming up to block your eyes. So you get the image? God's saying, You're the pupil. You're the part, the center of the eye that you have to have to see, the part that's connected to the optic nerve that connects to your brain so that you actually see. And when you see somebody's eye where that's clouded over or never moves, you know they can't see out of that eye. And God's saying, you're the apple of my eye and I'm gonna block it. You're mine. He presses another illustration. He says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now this is an image of a mother bird that in the heat of the day, this would not be uncommon to see in Israel. It's a barren land. There's hardly anywhere to hide in the heat of the day, that a mother bird would spread out her wings and her babies would come up under her wings to be protected from the heat because it's so intense, the heat would literally cook them to death. So the image is here when the heat is on us. It is God who hides us in the shadow in the cool place under his wings. Now he's describing the particular nature of what God is protecting him here. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. It's very interesting, the word deadly enemies literally means the enemies of my soul. So these people are having more effect than physical on David. They're surrounding him, they're they're moving in to kill him. They close their hearts to pity. In other words, there's just a blankness in their eyes. There's no conscience. There's no, there's no pity whatsoever in them. They're taunting him, their mouth, they speak arrogantly. They have surrounded our steps. So as they're moving in on him, they're taunting him. They're, uh, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. In other words, they're going to kill us. Verse 12. He is like a lion eager to tear a young lion lurking in ambush. Now, if you're paying attention, the pronoun shifted. For those of you who forgot what a pronoun is, they closed their hearts, their mouths, they have surrounded our steps, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. I think in the immediate context, whoever it is, probably Saul, is who he's referring to, but you gotta press this further biblically. You gotta see this for what this is. And I think what opened my mind to this and my heart is when he said, these are enemies of my soul. There's something more happening here than just physical. This is spiritual. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, written to suffering Christians, Peter says to the believers, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. here's what I want you to remember about the devil. Don't give him too much. He's a terrorist now. Christ has crushed his head. And he lurks out in the shadows seeking to ambush. He's there. He's a real threat. We don't fear him. Now, David goes further now. He's not just looking for protection. David now asks for deliverance. He seeks deliverance from the Lord. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. The lion. Confront Him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Rise up, O Lord. This is the language of a person who's in battle. And here's what he's doing. He's appealing to the Lord God as a divine warrior to intervene on his behalf and to bring them down. Exodus chapter 15 Moses, verse one, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. This is the core content of what we were teaching a few weeks ago at camp. That we who are engaged in this spiritual battle of life have and serve the warrior who has conquered sin and death. And we live courageously as followers of Jesus because, not because of who we are primarily, we live courageously because of who we serve. The Lord is a warrior. So we say, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. I don't have time to pursue this, but it'd be worth meditating on the relationship between Ephesians 6, 12 and following, and Psalm 17. Of how spiritual warfare and prayer go together. And I think it's it's clearly there, but that'd be a whole nother sermon. Back to the text. Here's the truth about the people pursuing David. Deliver me from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Now here's what he's saying. Here's, Here's David's perspective about who's after him. These people of the world, they're getting all they ever gonna get. This is it. What portion they get in this life is all. It says they fill their womb with treasure. There's a lot written about what, exactly what that means. Let's just say they're getting things. They're satisfied too easily. But he says they're satisfied. And here's what they're satisfied with some stuff, have some kids, pass their stuff to their kids. Their kids live for stuff. They get some stuff, they pass their stuff to their kids. So that goes. Just keep passing it on. Get some stuff, pass your stuff. I'll tell you something that'll sober you up. Uh, and I, I, I'm kind of weird and go to these things, but estate sales will sober you. One day, somebody's going to sell all your stuff. Your kids don't want all of it. They don't. Just think how much we live for the stuff, to give our kids the stuff, then they can get more stuff so they can leave their kids the stuff they don't want. We just keep passing this along. I have this conversation every year in this church. Let me just confront it a little bit. You can write me letters afterward, it'll be fine. Love to correspond with you about this. Some young person, because of we're a church that emphasizes the gospel, we're a church that emphasizes going with the gospel, inevitably young people are going to grow up in this church and God's going to call them to the mission field or to, to vocational ministry. And you're going to come up to me and go, which by the way, think of who you're talking to when you say this. Well, they're never going to have anything. Yeah. Most of you don't realize how rude that is when you do that. But anyhow, you're never going to have anything. How are my kids ever going to make money? And here's my response to you. I've never done without. I've never had much. I never will have much. But I've never done without. God has always faithfully supplied in my life. And I just wonder how many of you are raising your kids like the world. Let's get some stuff. You get a good job. You get you a bunch of stuff. I'll leave you my stuff. You'll sell it as a state sale. Get you some more stuff. Leave it to your kids and we just keep passing it down. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Here's what David's saying. He's contrasting himself. I'm not living like this. I'm, I'm not living like the world. As for me, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied in your likeness. Now notice the repetition of satisfied. It's in verse 14 and in verse 15. Same word. Satisfied means to have more than enough. So he's saying the godless are satisfied too easily. And what's true, they're never really satisfied in this life, but they live as if they are part of the time. What he's saying is the righteous, those who are in Christ, are satisfied now and they will be fully satisfied forever. So how is David satisfied now? He expects God to act now. But there's an also a tone of not yet in his satisfaction. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David knows that whether he wakes up in the morning, he's gonna be satisfied with the likeness of God or if they pursue in and kill them this evening while he goes to bed, that he will awaken the presence of God in the satisfying presence of God forever and ever. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards raised their children for the other world, not this one. God used Jonathan Edwards to be one of the fathers of the first great awakening that happened in the United States. He was an absolutely brilliant man. There are people who argue that Jonathan Edwards was the smartest man who ever lived in the U.S. His IQ must have been off the charts. But he lived in an out-of-way place in Southampton in a small church to where God, through that church, ignited a revival. What people often don't know about Jonathan Edwards was that he was heavily involved in the first missionary movement of the United States as well. A young man came to live with the Edwards and launched out of their home into the far corners of the New England to reach the Indians. That young man's name was David Brainerd. Uh, God used David Brainerd in some incredible ways. He contracted tuberculosis. He returned to the Edwards home and was nursed there by Jonathan's 17-year-old daughter. She, who was in love with David Brainerd and likely probably would have married him, she nursed him until he died. Now, this was in the 1780s. I mean, excuse me, early 1700s. There was no way to protect her from what she was doing. And she contracted it and she died too. What do two grieving parents of a 17-year-old and of a young man that had grown dear to their heart, what did they put on the gravestone of a 17-year-old girl who nursed the man she loved to his death, never to marry him? Here's what they put on her tomb. Psalm 17, 15. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Here's what drove these two parents, and this is what they knew drove this young woman. It wasn't this world she was living for. Because there was something beyond this world she was living for. She lived in the here and now, not as if this is all there is. She lived in the here and now as if there's more. So my question to you in conclusion this morning, is my current trust in the Lord as my saving refuge, a reflection of what I know is yet to be? In other words, are you living for the here and now, or are you living for something that's more? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. What kind of love has the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, now if you get the argument that John's making here, he's saying there's something coming that we're gonna be like him. When we see him face to face, we're gonna awaken into his likeness, but now, right now, we are God's children. And because right now we are God's children and the hope of what's coming, we purify ourselves as he is pure. In other words, we live righteous. We should be praying as David prays here in Psalm 17 and we shouldn't be ashamed to pray it. Steve Lawson said of this text, he summed it up in one simple sentence. The world is passing away. Heaven is eternal. Eternal Persecution keeps the perspective. You say, what? I'll repeat it. The world is passing away. Heaven is eternal. Persecution keeps the perspective. Here's what he's saying. The thing that keeps our feet on the ground and our heart aligned with the things of God is difficulty. Difficulty reminds us that this is not all there is. And our thoughts toward what is to come are the hope that this one day will end. So brothers and sisters, I say to you, living for Christ now in righteousness in the face of difficulty is the evidence of the hope that is yet to be. We live in the real now with real needs as we long for what is yet to come. We live in the now and we long for the not yet. I wish they were here today. A couple of them have gone to be with Jesus. I wish they had the old quartet. Two of them didn't sing on key. And I can hear them. Life here is grand with friends I love so dear. Comfort I get from God's own word. Yet when I face the chilling hand of death, Where could I go but to the Lord? Where could I go? Seeking the refuge for my soul, needing a friend to save me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? Let's pray. Oh Lord, I recognize that there are men and women in this room who don't know where to turn, who didn't know where to turn. And today, this has been a good word, a healing word, a timely word into their life. I pray that they will flee to you and look to Christ. For those who do not have the hope of salvation, I pray they would understand that their righteousness is not the basis of being heard. It is the righteousness of Christ. May they repent of their sin and trust in Christ as their savior and flee to you. May we all hear the tender words of the savior. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So God, give give us perspective. Give us brokenness when necessary. Give us the strength and the courage living under your refuge, trusting in your deliverance to live in the now and to trust you. One day we're gonna wake up. For those who are in Christ, we're gonna wake up in your presence and we will be like you and that by your grace and your grace alone. Comfort your people now and call those in need of you to yourself. We plead and pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.